Hello, and welcome to Cover to Credits, the bi-weekly podcast where we discuss books and their movie adaptations. I'm Ian George. And I'm Adina Hilton. In this episode, we'll be discussing All the President's Men. All the President's Men was written by Carl Bernstein and Bob Woodward and was published in 1974. And the film adaptation directed by Alan J. Pakula came out in 1976. And this is a patron-requested episode. Our lovely patron, Eric, asked if we would do this episode. And of course, anything for our patrons, right? Anything at all. (laughs) Don't even hesitate to ask. As long as you're giving us monthly money, we're at your mercy. (laughs) And um, actually, Ian and I watched this movie for the first time. At least it was my first time watching it. Mine too. A few years ago. What even, I mean, I know it's like a famous movie, but I can't remember what specifically made us put it on. I don't know. We just watched it one night and we were like, this is great. Yeah. And we knew it was based on a book. And so when we got this suggestion from Eric, we were like, this is a really great opportunity to discuss a really influential time in American history, a very influential book, and of course, um, a Oscar-nominated film as well. Yeah. And I mean... I was just thinking about the relevance of this story historically to present day. Yeah. Just two days ago, I was reading this book and at the same time checking Twitter to see if the former president of the United States was arrested. (laughs) So, you know, things are still going on. Yeah. Uh, There is still scandal. There is still mystery and crazy shit going on in politics. It's wild because at the time of the Watergate scandal, you know, no president had been impeached for a hundred years. And then we had Nixon, then we had Clinton. Well, Nixon was never technically impeached. That's true. He resigned before he could be impeached. (laughs) They tried to, though. Clinton, though. Clinton's like, impeach me, baby. And And then Trump gets impeached twice. I mean, are we just like snowballing (laughs) the impeachment, right? Yeah, It's just going to become faster and faster. In 12 years, the president's going to be impeached like eight times (laughs) in one term. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, just when... You know, we didn't obviously live through uh, the Watergate scandal, but we're living through our own scandal right now. And so the perspectives are interesting because, you know, right now Trump is in the thick of like a grand jury investigation uh, over his payments of money to Stormy Daniels. And I'm like, wait, that that's happening again. Yeah, so I'm it watching, seems so long ago. Yes, I'm watching YouTube videos explaining like why that's happening now and exactly what the situation is and trying to like gain an understanding of it. I actually just asked my mom about Watergate. I just talked to her today. <laughs> and she said it it went on when she was a senior in high school. And she was real wrapped up in it and kind of knew everyone. Not everyone, but a lot of people that she knew, other family members and stuff, were also really uh, invested in what was going on. Yeah. And she read the book when it came out and said she loved it. And so uh, I, I know there's plenty of Trump books out, but I'm waiting for that one Trump book that's just going to distill <laughs> everything I need to know about all of his scandals in one book that I can just I, I just want to read one book, Adina. <laughs> Not 50. Not 50. Yeah. Some things that I noticed when I was reading this book, too, were these comments about the Republicans and how ruthless they were in their campaigns to reelect Nixon and how they kept saying like, well, we can't let them steal the election from us. We can't let the Democrats steal the election. And I'm like, Jesus Christ, nothing has changed, has (laughs) it? No. You know? Reading like a lot of the attacks from like the White House to the press, like 
It's most specifically focused, at least in the book on the Washington Post, since they're leading a lot of the investigative journalism on Watergate. Yeah. But I mean, just think about Trump attacking the failing New York Times and and also all of the White House's uh, vague responses to scandal that are kind of... All the press secretaries. Yes. And their drama. Vaguely denying, but not fully addressing the topic being asked about. And yeah, you're just like, wow, nothing really changes, right? They all go back to the same old playbook. Yeah, I also want to say up top, you know, having not lived this and having just a very passable understanding of Watergate and the players involved, it was a little bit of a challenge for us to read this book. I think the movie does a good job of making you understand kind of the themes and the the movement of the story and not as much the particular players, whereas the book really heavily goes into a lot of detail on this congressional aide, this person who worked for the committee to reelect the president, this person that worked in the White House. You know, there's so many characters. And the book does helpfully provide a little bit of a list of people at the beginning. But honestly, it doesn't really help because <laughs> it's so overwhelming. And I will say, having not lived through it, I think we have a little bit of a different perspective than someone who was there when it was happening, right? Yeah, there's occasionally points in the book that will refer to a person or event historically that sometimes I had some knowledge of, like Ted Kennedy and Chappaquiddick. Like, I kind of knew generally what that was about, but then there were other things, like um, it referred to the man who released the Pentagon Papers. And yes. I didn't know his name, but, like, the book almost kind of assumes that you would. Yeah, so there are parts in the book that... It's almost like the authors expect you to understand what's already happening. And I think because of the time it was written, most people reading it would have understood it. But it does make it harder for a book to have not just not relevance, but to have um, the same cultural currency, I would say, yeah. in, in a different time. And I'm just saying this up top because we might mess some things up. This episode is not meant to be um, like an analysis of Watergate yeah. and the players. Like we're here to talk about the book. We're here to talk about the movie and our perspectives as kind of people who, you know, are from the millennial generation looking back on this time. We're obviously seeing parallels to our own time as well. But yeah, we apologize if we mess anything up. This We're here for a good time, not for a correct time. <laughs> Put that on a t-shirt. <laughs> I told you and I was like, uh, we don't work from the Washington Post and we are not checking our sources. <laughs> no, we have, we have two sources, a film and a movie, and the film is just pulling directly from the book. So basically we have one source on all of this. Let's get into uh, the inciting incident of this story, though. The thing that sets the wheels in motion, and that is the break-in at the Watergate. Yes, which is a building where there's a lot of different offices and apartment buildings, and the Democratic National Committee? Yeah, the, de the headquarters yeah. of the de Democratic National Committee is there. Yes, and there's a break-in. I like getting to see this in the movie. We just hear about it in the yeah. book. Yeah, we watch these uh, men with latex gloves looking very suspicious in their trench coats and uh they're picking locks and it begins with us seeing a security guard finding tape on one of the uh, doors leading into the building and fun fact adina that security guard is the real life security guard 
that discovered the door at Watergate. What? Yep. Oh, they got shout the, out. They got the real guy in. <laughs> they brought him in. That's great. Yeah. I liked seeing the guy um, on the walkie-talkie in the yes. neighboring building kind of implying this outside connection from the beginning, right? That there's all these other people involved. Um, and then we see Woodward going to the courthouse and finding out about these burglars and kind of there to write a story for the Washington Post. Yes, he's listening to their arraignment from the judge, and he overhears that at least one of them admits to having worked for the CIA, and he finds out that he actually works for the committee, to some capacity, he works for the committee to reelect the president. CRP, also known as Creep? Creep. (laughs) (laughs) It's one of those things that they kind of just mention offhandedly in the film. I don't think they ever explain it. They're like, yeah, he works for Creep. Yeah, and I I didn't even catch this reference. Yeah, yeah. They they (laughs) refer to it as Creep quite often, which is pretty funny. Yeah, and um, so all of these men, one of them has ties to the CIA, but the others, they find out later, have been involved in anti-communist and, like, anti-Cuban activities. Yeah. So, you know, all this stuff with Cuba and with Fidel Castro is happening around this time. And it's just super weird, right? In the movie, we see Woodward, and and this happens in the book, too, it's described, kind of questioning these lawyers that are supposed to represent these men. And I like that we're getting a sense of Woodward's interviewing style, where he just keeps going up to the guy and talking to them, even though the guy is like, I'm not talking to you. Keeps pestering him. Yeah. Yeah, I think the film maybe fudges some of the details or kind of condenses things. But essentially, these men had requested representation, but then a lawyer came who was going to represent them, who was paid. So the uh, lawyers who were assigned to them left and Woodward is like that's weird obviously they didn't know these this lawyer was coming because they requested representation so who's providing the lawyer for them like who's indicating a conspiracy yeah who's in the background defending these guys yeah and this is the time where we meet both Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein and they have scenes here where they're in the Washington Post office by the way I love this set oh my god great the Really expansive office environment with, like, the pillars and Mm -hmm. the columns. Something this movie does, and I'll be mentioning it a few times, it uses, and I think I'm saying this right, a split diopter lens, which essentially is kind of a half lens at the front of the camera. So something that's really close to the camera can be in focus, and something far in the background can also be in focus. And it's not that it has a really deep depth of field. Like, it's not that the entire space is in focus. It kind of has, like, um, you'll notice it, too. Like, they hide it really well in this film, where a lot of times you'll see a blurry edge where that split diopter kind of is literally split. But a lot of times they'll have it, like, right where one of those columns is. Yeah. So it's not super noticeable, but it perfectly frames it where, like, Bob Woodward will be in the foreground, like on the phone. And then in the background to the other side of the screen, also in focus, will be something else going on. Yeah. And I just love their usage of this. They use it a lot in the film. I I feel like it captures the chaos and order of the newsroom, right? Yeah. Because you see either Woodward or Bernstein working on something, but then you see reporters in the background. Mm -hmm. They're also working on stuff, right? And it's kind of showing how this office functions. Yeah, yeah. It's a a really cool effect. Mm -hmm. 
Um, we have this very pivotal scene where Bernstein is kind of reading these papers that Woodward <laughs> is typing up. And he, he's taking them and then he's retyping them. And they have this confrontation where Wood, Woodward's like, what the fuck are you doing with my papers? And Bernstein says, I'm rewriting them. Like, you don't, you're not a really good writer. Like, this is better. <laughs> yeah. And I love this because Woodward does read it and is like, you're right. Yours is better. Um, and this is kind of them coming together, and they both end up getting put on this Watergate project, and both end up forming this unlikely partnership. The book kind of goes into more detail about how they're really kind of, they really don't like each other at the beginning. Yeah, they're very confrontational. They argue a lot. But I also like, because they still establish a mutual respect where if either of them doesn't want to move forward on publishing a story, if one of them thinks there's maybe not enough evidence, if they're uncertain about the details, the other one, as much as they may disagree, will, you know, decide not to go forward. You know, it only takes one of them to be uncertain. And so they have this, I think, mutual respect for each other. And the book alludes to that they even become friends in a way yes. right, through all their work together. And the book doesn't go into a lot of details of like what their personal relationship or working dynamic is, but occasionally it'll touch on it. And I think in a film, it's just great to see them playing off of each other. Right. Yeah. I really like in the beginning of the book, how it tells us about what they thought about each other at the beginning. <laughs> yeah. That part's great. Bernstein is this guy who grew up in the area and has worked for a newspaper since he was like 16, right? Didn't go to college, you know, is a better writer, is more of kind of a free thinker. His parents actually were part of the Communist Party. Oh, shit, really? Yeah, and, like, during the time when you, like, could not be communist, <laughs> yeah. and, like, somehow this was hidden. But, like, you know, Woodward kind of identifies him more with, like, the hippies. He's got longer hair. Yeah. He's really kind of anti-establishment. Um, and so Woodward has these preconceived notions about Bernstein. And Woodward's a little bit more clean cut, uh, but he's also more fresh to this job and career of like writing for a newspaper. Right. And I think Bernstein in some ways doesn't look down on him for it, but has a bit of superiority over him in that regard. And so I just really love their dynamic. They have a few different scenes together. I also love in the film, they have a couple different moments when they're arguing about when there's enough evidence to push for a story. Right? <laughs> yeah. And Bernstein will say, listen, if I fall asleep and the streets are clear and I wake up and they're covered in snow, I can uh, <laughs> believe that it snowed overnight. And then, you know, Woodward is like, no, that's a different thing. And they'll kind of have these mini arguments over when there's enough evidence and when there isn't. When they can jump to a certain conclusion. But then they'll switch, right? Yes. It'll be the other person trying to convince the other one that they have enough. And I, I like this back and forth between them. And I really do like the actors here. We have Dustin Hoffman playing Carl Bernstein and Robert Redford playing uh, Bob Woodward. Yes, yeah. And great actors, great dynamic. So at this point in the investigation, a address book is discovered on one of the burglars that connects them to Howard Hunt, who is privately contracted by, I think, Creep. Yeah. And G. Gordon Liddy. And these are two men who both have connections to Creep. Mm -hmm. And so now we have a connection to the committee to reelect the president. And it's implied in the book that 
the committee to reelect the president is a separate entity than the White House. But a lot of people who Nixon knows and trusted basically went from the White House to CRP and like their office and vice versa is like across the street. And it's like implied that it's it's essentially an extension of the White House in a lot of ways, not legally. Yes. But if some if stuff is going on with the CRP, you have to question what the White House staff knows about or if there's any corroboration, right? Yeah. And so, you know, Bernstein and Woodward are investigating at this time. They're calling up all these people and they're trying to figure out this Hunt and Liddy connection, how much they knew. Did they hire the burglars to do this? Were the burglars acting on their own? There are these suspicious checks that they find, too. And there's this whole network where they end up uncovering this operation where some of these checks were deposited in Mexico and then brought into the United States. They were essentially, if the Nixon campaign got a generous uh, donation from a Democrat who was worried about being outed for, you know, supporting a Republican candidate, they would essentially launder the money in Mexico (laughs) and then write a check from Mexico and thus kind of like erasing the paper trail of like who this money was going from. So I think it was like four checks from this Mexico money laundering operation went to the burglars. But one check was from a politician in the U.S. Yeah. Uh, what was his name? Damn it. I can't find it. It was in my notes somewhere. I have so many notes. But essentially, they disco- that's how they discover this operation because they call him. And somehow a check that was made out as a donation to the campaign just got worked in to the burglars. Yeah. So this person who was like, I mean, I gave this check to Stans, who is the head of creeps, you know, fund here. And they're like, yeah, but it was found on a burglar breaking (laughs) into the Democratic headquarters. So this whole thing's coming out. We have Bernstein going to Florida to find these checks and investigate that aspect of it. We also are finding out about how Hunt was possibly investigating Ted Kennedy And this leads Bernstein and Woodward to question whether Nixon's administration was investigating his political opponents. Yeah, exactly. What was the CRP using this money for? What was Howard Hunt's job, essentially? Like, if he was hiring these men to break into Watergate, what else was he up to and what was, like, the ultimate goal? Was it just aiding Nixon? Like, how many different ways was he trying to accomplish this? Around this time in the story, we are introduced to one of the most iconic characters slash real life characters, honestly, in in history, in U.S. history. And that is Deep Throat. (laughs) So I knew about Deep Throat for a long time. Yeah. But it was not until I read this book, Ian, that I knew that that was a reference to a porno. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Yep. Did you know that? I did, I think. Yeah, I definitely knew before reading the book. I kind of forget why I knew that. <laughs> I definitely didn't watch the porno. <laughs> <laughs> this, so in the book, they're talking about the source that Woodward has, somebody that he knows that's high up in government somewhere, right? And when someone is a really, really classified source, they referred to it as a deep background. Yeah. And so Woodward was 
saying this person was on deep background. And then one of the editors, I forget which one in the Washington Post, started joking that it was deep throat because it was an actual porno that had come out around this yes. time. And in fact, there's a line in the book yes. where one of the editors is like, Bernstein, you need to get out of the office because they're trying to like steal our records for this bogus subpoena. Like, get out, just get out of the office for a little bit, see a movie. And it, Bernstein is like, yeah, I went to see Deep Throat. And I'm like, <laughs> imagine, imagine being a man in this Pre, time, Ian. Pre-internet porn, Adina. You just being like, I'm just going to go into this theater yep. and watch porn with a dozen other <laughs> furiously <laughs> masturbating strangers. Like, what a time. I was like... <laughs> Is that a real, like, did Bernstein actually do that? Or was that just kind of like a joke? Yeah. Also, like, how long did these pornos show for? Like, was it just, like, endless screenings? Well, and also, (laughs) was it popular enough? It must have been that, like, a lot of people knew about it. But it had like, to be. But why Why was that one porno so popular? I feel like we, I need to do research on Deep Throat the porno. I don't think we want to do research. <laughs> I'm going to do extensive research. <laughs> it is just funny, though, you know, that, like, uh, the editor is essentially admitting to knowing what it was. Yeah. So, like, obviously there is kind of a general knowledge of, like, this movie that existed, right? Yeah. Uh, so this informant for Woodward... The movie kind of establishes Woodward calls him and Deep Throat is like, I'm not going to discuss this situation. And Woodward is like, I mean, what do you mean? We talked about what about that other time? And he said that was the shooting of someone. I don't I'm kind of not am sure what they were referring to, but he's like, I'm not talking about this. So really elevating the the tension and the drama like Mm -hmm. he would talk about an assassination, but not. Watergate. Yeah. And then the next morning, Woodward finds an envelope in his newspaper with instructions on how to meet with this source for any future rendezvous they might have. And this is described to us in the book. We don't get like this actually happening, but we're told how Woodward meets with this source. It's very complicated. He puts a flag in his flower pot on his patio and moves it to a particular position. And then Deep Throat will will walk by and see it and then know that that night they have to meet at a specific parking garage at 2 a.m. And Woodward has to take two cabs there. Yeah, he has to switch off cabs to make sure nobody's following him. Yeah. It's very intensive. Uh, I mean, this whole setup, though, is just so perfectly cinematic. The eerie... Uh, I mean, a parking garage. Fluorescent bulb-lit parking garage. The cool, (laughs) unsettling color the deep shadows in the distance i love the way they film deep throat like the way he's lit kind the of cigarette from lighter yeah the cigarette lighter is perfect <laughs> yeah he's very iconic in this movie he's he's got like the deep gravelly voice he's mysterious yeah. he's always like weirdly lit right he utters lines like follow the money follow the money <laughs> yeah no just being very vague and ominous great trailer content you know oh yeah i heard hal hallbrook who plays deep throat in the film wasn't really wanting to do it because it's such a small role but the director or someone maybe it was robert redford approached him it was like people are going to remember your character more than anyone else in this film like trust me and yeah. kind of convinced him to do it but all these scenes are so great and they kind of establish and i mean also worth mentioning, we know who Deep Throat is now. Yes. Mark Felt. Mark Felt, who was deputy 
director of the FBI. So second in command at the FBI at this point. So yeah, an incredibly valuable and powerful source. I mean, this was only revealed in 2005. Exactly. Yeah. It came out much later in 2005. Uh, it was revealed who the identity of Deep Throat was. And like some people had speculated it might be him, but there was a whole list of people that they thought might be Deep Throat. Uh, so yeah, I mean, his sources and his intel were obviously like really important to this investigation. Yeah, Deep Throat though is not just there to hand out info to Woodward, and there's some speculation on why that is. Where Woodward is sort of like, you know, I don't know why he says he's only going to confirm what I already know, yeah, and, and he doesn't want to tell me things, and like you assume that maybe. When, and especially realizing he's a deputy director, that if he's so high up and he tells Woodward certain things that only he would know, he would reveal himself. Yeah. That he's speaking to the press, which would jeopardize his position. So, like, he's very paranoid and he's very conscious of his position and how much he reveals to Woodward. So even though he is this really crazy, intense source, right, he's also not just laying out all this info for Woodward. Yeah, uh, I think... Bernstein and Woodward have, in years following the book, have kind of clarified or put emphasis on, like, yeah, Deep Throat was, like, an important part of the investigation, was very valuable. But, like, there were other sources of info who were maybe more valuable than he was, who went on the record, who gave us more specific info. So, like, he kind of gets more credit for being mysterious and interesting. And having a porno name. <laughs> having a porno <laughs> name. Uh, but kind of clarifying that, like, his role was in some ways minimal. I do think the movie really heightens these scenes, though. I mean, like I said, this is great trailer content, really adding to the drama of the film. I like moments where there's, like, a noise, yeah. right? And they're like, what, what was, was that? that? <laughs> and then in one scene, it's, like, partway through the film... Uh, they hear a car, I think, like peeling out. And when Woodward looks back, Deep Throat's gone and he's leaving. Woodward is leaving the parking garage and he starts getting paranoid and he kind of goes into a jog. The music is swelling. And then suddenly he stops in his track, spins around. The music cuts out. The camera like kind of rushes at him and stops. Yeah. And it's. Like, somehow they use silence in such a terrifying way. Like, the way they cut the music and all sound, like, it almost is, like, <gasps> like a gasp. And then there's just, there's nothing behind him, right? Yeah. But, like, I think they convey his paranoia and fear so effectively in this film, like, in that moment. For sure. So as they're getting into this investigation, they're publishing all these little stories, right? And I find it interesting comparing this to another, uh, like kind of report reporting story movie that we really like spotlight. Oh God. Spotlight is so good. But interestingly with spotlight, they do all the research first and then they publish. Yeah. And the way this happens because it's like happening like while they're writing. Yeah. Is that they're writing all these little stories one by one and kind of building on yeah. what they've already written. And so it's really like kind of this slowly growing story. And they end up finding out about how Creep has essentially just this slush fund of cash that they use to do mysterious things, right? They talk to all these sources and people who were like, yeah, I don't really know what it was used for. And like, I kind of just assumed that it was for like donors and things like that. But it's we're talking like a lot of money and also not being regulated very much. Um, 
We also, in the movie, are given a list of all the people that work for Creep. The movie paints this as Woodward and Bernstein actually have to ask one of their fellow employees to get this from her ex-fiance. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of a whole ordeal that they put this poor girl through. But she gets them a list of people who work for Creep. And they seem to target women who were probably secretaries. Like every door they knock on seems to be for a woman. I'm guessing because I don't think they were interviewed as much as like the actual men who were involved, but obviously had firsthand information on the goings on of what happened. Yeah. So they kind of begin this whole campaign of like going door to door, knocking on people's doors, trying to get an interview, trying to get anyone on record or even just talk to someone to confirm or deny certain information. Right. But they keep getting turned away. One person after another, they talk to one girl who kind of begins talking to them very naturally at first. And then she kind of gets skittish and sends them away. And they're driving away and they're arguing. And then they decide, let's go back and talk to her. I think we can get through to her. And so they go back and she answers the door again. But now she's like really shaken. And she says, you have to go. They'll see you. <laughs> they're like, excuse me? And yeah. she's like, I can't talk. And, <laughs> and they know now, like, someone is checking in on them or someone's watching. Yeah. This is... They're being told not to talk. Yes. They're under all this pressure. There is a funny scene where they end up talking to a woman who's, like, so welcoming. <laughs> she invites them in. She's like, I really respect what you're doing. Would you like some tea? They're looking at each other. They're like, finally. Someone's going to talk to us. And she says... Oh, this Watergate thing, you've only scratched the surface, trust me. And they're like, oh, my God, tell me more. And she's like, I mean, I only work at, like, a department store. store." What? And then they realize that they've gotten the wrong one. (laughs) I love that that moment of relief where you think they found someone to finally talk to them and treat them with respect. And she's not one of the names. We have a really influential and important scene here where Bernstein ends up going to this woman's house who is a bookkeeper for Creep and knocks on the door and the woman lets him in because he's actually there to talk to her sister. So the sister has unknowingly is like, yeah, come on in. And the sister's like, I don't want to talk to you. And it's so funny because Bernstein is very casual, but at the same time persistent, right? (laughs) He's like, sure, I'll have a cup of coffee. Maybe I'd have a refill and a cup of coffee. I'm just going to sit down. Yeah. Right? You know, he's he's making himself comfortable. He's bringing up questions to this bookkeeper about the slush fund, who had access to the money, how much money was going in and out, what she thought the money was for. And this bookkeeper at first is telling him nothing. But then as he's volunteering information to her, he's like, we know about the, the money. Yeah. We know there was a slush fund, right? And then she's like, yeah. He's like, we know this guy was involved. And she's she's like, yeah. You know, and so this is an interesting tactic. And we see this a lot in the book and in the movie, too. But I feel like this is used a lot in the book where with sources, if they kind of know half of it and are like, well, we obviously know about this thing, they get their source to reveal confirm that detail and then also add more. Yes. Yeah. They'll kind of trick their source into being like, yeah, no, you're right. Even though they just made that up. Right. Or they're going off a hunch. Yeah. Or, you know, having a source who doesn't want to maybe directly reveal information. But if they bring up a name and are like, is it this person? They'll they will give the subtlest of nods, Adina. <laughs> the nods in As this movie. As if a movie, tiny nod could implicate you less. I know. <laughs> 
<laughs> it can't be too enthusiastic of a nod, Adina. <laughs> I mean, seriously, though, like the nods that some people would give were, were so imperceptible, but like it works, right, for the scene. Yeah. And at, this, at one point, he's like, how about initials? Yes. Right? And he gets her to give like the first initials of like three men who were involved. I just love this scene, though. I love the interaction of Bernstein. Dustin Hoffman does so well in this part because like you really feel she's so skittish. Like he could scare her off at any moment. Right? Yeah. And he has to be so careful with what he asks and how he asks it and, you know, being very exact. And it's so funny because this scene of him talking to her smash cuts to him showing up at Woodward's house, <laughs> rattling off all the information that he found out. He's like written on scraps of paper and napkins. He's going a mile a minute and he's like, yeah, I kept drinking coffee when I was there <laughs> so I wouldn't get kicked out. And like, he's like all ca- caffeinated now and like energetic. And- it's really great. I love the scene so much. They actually end up going back to her place the next morning to confirm some of the things that she had hinted at to Bernstein the night before. And they get her to actually actually give some of the names and she reveals um Liddy uh Porter. Porter and Magruder. Yes. Were three men who were given money for various espionage tasks, right? They were uh, allotted money from the slush fund. Yeah. They end up determining through the bookkeeper and through other sources that like there were people who were paid from the slush fund. There were people who had control over the slush fund, right? There was like authorized payers who could access the money and actually pay it out. And in determining who these payers were, who the payees were, right, and who had ultimate authority over the slush fund becomes a really big aspect of the investigation. Yeah, I think the book did a really good job here of kind of consolidating a lot of these threads to being like there's the slush fund, there's the people who were paid through the slush fund, and the people that approved payments through the slush fund. And I think there were five people who approved payments, but I can only think of like three at the moment. One was almost certainly uh, a man named Mitchell. The second they were really certain was the chief of staff for the president, Haldeman. And then they, were, they weren't positive about that one, though. They were really yeah. trying for that one. And then another man who wasn't in Washington, D.C. and wasn't a politician who they suspected was maybe Nixon's very uh, – close personal attorney uh, who lived out in California. Kalmbach. Kalmbach, yeah. So they're kind of beginning to paint this like larger and larger network of conspirators involved in this. And tying it way more closely with the the White House and with Nixon personally. Yeah, but then the question too of like, okay, yeah, this money was used to pay for Watergate, but like what was the rest of the money for? This idea that like, there's, there's this huge amount of cash. Yeah, right? there's more going on here. Like Watergate couldn't have been like the first and only thing that they used this money to do that was illegal, right? Yeah. And speaking of the Watergate, so like obviously when Watergate happened, there was like an FBI, you know, investigation of it, right? Because it's involving the Demo- the Democratic Committee, right? So they have to investigate. And there's this FBI investigation. And the more that Woodward and Bernstein are, like, finding out about this and talking to people, they're realizing that the FBI is not really investigating this case. In fact, they're limiting their questions to all the people that they're questioning to just be about the break-in. They're not asking about the slush fund. They're not asking about what else was that money used for. And in fact, they find out that certain 
people who were interviewed by the FBI actually after their interview went back to the FBI and were like, listen, you didn't ask me about all this other stuff that was happening. <laughs> yeah. And they end up going back and trying to tell the FBI more. And the FBI is just not interested. Yeah, the FBI has a very narrow focus on their investigation to things that only relate directly to the Watergate break-in. Questions about what else was the money in the slush fund used for? Who else was involved in the approval of funds for various uh, tasks, right? Like, none of this seemed to be any interest to the FBI. And so this is, like, very weird and very suspicious, right? Yeah, and they find out that only seven people are going to be indicted for the Watergate scandal, which are the five burglars and then Hunt and Liddy, who were directly tied to those burglars, right? So only seven people indicted in which... You know, Woodward and Bernstein specifically know that it extends a lot farther. And so they're determined to write more stories and find out more and maybe pressure the FBI to investigate more. Now, I have a question, Adina, kind of going back to uh, book versus movie adaptation, right? I think the book, despite being so loaded with names and information, the threads are there for you to read and connect and kind of go back and remember. And like you have the index at the front to remind yourself who worked in what position at the White House or for Creep. It's interesting rewatching this film because I remember liking it the first time we watched it, but almost being more aware of the actual facts watching it this time. I was like, how could anyone follow with no prior knowledge to this story? How could anyone follow really what's going on with all of this information. It's more of the vibes. It honestly. is. Yes, it's the vibes. <laughs> and I find that so interesting, right? Yeah. That like a movie that is so heavily rooted in fact and names and who talked to who and who paid who, what, when, recorded where, with <laughs> what info. Like all this, it's, it's a constant onslaught of almost exposition that almost none of it really matters. Like you get enough of it to be able to follow okay, they're doing good right now. <laughs> or they just learned something that they didn't know before. I don't know what that is really, but I know that they didn't know it. I know, having watched the movie before and then starting to read the book, I was like, I have no knowledge of this. <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't feel like the, the movie really taught me anything about it. But that's kind of a, a, a difficult, because I feel even though I think maybe Spotlight does it slightly better, it also probably I think has less of an extreme an extremely convoluted story. For sure. Uh, it takes a few times of watching Spotlight to be like, oh, right, that guy is this guy. And like, yeah. oh, right, that thing is referring to this, right? Like, when you're only hearing names, because you don't even have faces to tie to the names. Like, in this film, they talk so about so many people, right? Yeah. Howard Hunt, Magruder. Mitchell, uh, Liddy, Mitchell, yeah, like stands all these people that you never even have a face to put with the name, right? Or understand the hierarchy of like how they work, but their names are brought up so frequently that. But I don't think you ever really get a grasp of like who's who. Yeah, and I guess my thought is like, does that matter? Because I mean, if you like the movie and you get the general vibe of what's going on, is that enough? Or is filmmaking as a medium not doing enough to actually help you visually understand what's going on? Well, I would say that the book also doesn't do a great job to help you understand what's going on. Yeah. So I don't know if it's the medium or it's just the method of storytelling or if it's just the content itself. That's I mean, this story specifically 
like you would almost need like the the diagrams <laughs> on a cork board with the string. With the string. <laughs> like I'm a visual person. I need like people in buckets on a cork board to be like they worked for creep. This who this guy worked above this guy and this guy reported to that guy. Like I need visual representation, for right? For sure. Which a movie can almost in some ways possibly do better than a book, right? But I don't know. It, it it's just a really interesting way of like how each version, each medium is communicating its information. But the movie's going more for vibes, right? Yeah. And it's successful in that. But the book is going for more detailed information, which in a lot of ways it's successful, but in a lot of ways it also fails, right? Yes. It's it's an interesting conundrum. Yeah. Which I'm sure will lead us to a discussion on which we prefer. But yeah, it, it is confusing. For sure. It, yeah. <laughs> I'm just like, who? But what? Like, but like I said, the first time we watched this, I didn't have those thoughts at all. No. I was just like, I liked that movie. <laughs> <laughs> I learned nothing about Watergate, but I liked that movie. <laughs> uh, let's talk about Sloan a little bit. The bookkeeper ends up leading them to Sloan, who is actually someone who was the um, treasurer for Creep, who re- resigned over the Watergate scandal. Yeah, his pregnant wife was basically like, you're going to quit or we're going to have some issues. <laughs> and he's like, okay, honey. <laughs> yeah, I like that he's portrayed as kind of like the good guy in all of this, yeah. right? And actually, when they were writing their stories for the Washington Post, they did not name Sloan as a source. But when they published their book a few years later, he agreed to be named as a source. So, you know, this is someone who was anonymous for a while and then did come forward and, and you know, was allowed to be quoted and uh, named as a source. But, you know, he's the one that kind of tells them about and gives them hints about the FBI investigation not being thorough, talks about his role as the treasurer, all this money, and then realizing that it's just so fucked up and he has to resign. Yeah, he's one of those cases where it's interesting where, like, he will start telling them certain information, but then he's like, eh, that's too much for today. Let's call it quits. Like, I can't tell you more than that. And you're like, just tell them the whole story. (laughs) God damn it. But you also understand, right? Like, he's in a tough spot, and he has to kind of be careful about who he trusts and when he reveals things, right? Yeah. Let's talk about um, one of the characters that is important in the book, but I think is also really important in the movie, which is uh, Ben Bradley, who's one of the editors at the Washington Post. Yeah, he's played by Jason Robards. And you said, I think, that he won Best Supporting Actor for this film, which he is just so good (laughs) in this movie. He's so flat, kind of, in his, like, delivery of lines, but so funny, so good. Uh, Yeah, I just want to say, you're both on the story now. Don't fuck it up. (laughs) (laughs) I read that leading up to this film, both Robert Redford and Dustin Hoffman, like, were in the uh, Washington Post newsroom, (laughs) kind of, like, hanging around, observing. Uh, You know, at one point, Dustin Hoffman was, like, mistaken for, like, a a, a junior reporter or something. And, uh, you know, so they just spent a lot of time. Apparently, Jason Robards spent one day with Ben Bradley just hanging out in his office, and that was it, just the one day. But then his wife was, like, or uh, Ben Bradley's wife was like, that was enough. He nailed him. (laughs) 
like he only needed the one day. He got him down to a T. Yeah, I love that he he encourages um, Woodward and Bernstein, but he also doesn't coddle them. Right? No. He's like, this isn't front page material. Get more next time. Yeah, you know, he's he's pushing them right, and but he does defend them when it comes down to it. Yeah, he's that great balance. And at one point, you know. Woodward in the film is kind of like, we're trying to investigate this thing, but we haven't had any luck. And he's kind of like, we'll get some. And then later in the elevator, Bernstein is like, you shouldn't have mentioned luck to a man. You shouldn't have mentioned luck. He doesn't like that. (laughs) I also want to talk about the movie shows some editors meetings where Woodward and Bernstein are not in the room for these scenes. And we see Bradley and some other editors like uh, Rosenfeld, who's defending them discussing these Watergate stories and kind of giving us this perspective that was probably happening at the time where some people were like, well, this makes no sense, right? Yeah. Why would Nixon and his whole campaign like go after the Democrats when he has such a huge lead right now, right? Yeah. He's literally about to be nominated for the Republican what what's the, what's the word? nomination? Yeah, he's he's going to be nominated as you know the Republicans' choice. He's running for re-election. As the events of this story take place, Nixon gets re-elected, right, and re-inaugurated. Yeah, I mean, like you said, he's the incumbent. He has he's the the polling is really favorable on him. So everyone's like, well, what does he have to gain for doing this risky break-in at Watergate? And what people didn't understand at the time and what these editors are also not understanding is that this is just the tip of the iceberg, right? This was just the latest in a series of attempts to infiltrate his political opponents. Well, and this reminds me of something, too, of that Deep Throat said, where he said, these aren't very bright men. (laughs) They got over-enthusiastic and they're in over their heads now. This idea of just the general idiocy of regular people. (laughs) Yeah. And I mean, we have that with Trump, right? We have all these fucking crazy things that happened with Trump and we're still sifting through it, unfortunately. Yeah, it's like maybe everything isn't true, but I kind of would believe almost anything like if it was backed up by evidence because yeah. I believe he's not smart enough to like properly cover his tracks or to make bad decisions. Absolutely. And as we're talking about this, like these kind of stupid but also ridiculously awful conspiracies and things that they were doing to disrupt their political opponent opponents, we have to talk about Segretti. Segretti, yes. This whole um, operation that he ended up being part of, and it seemed like he was kind of heading his own division of people that worked on it, but then we find out later that there were whole networks of people that were doing this stuff. Yeah, Segretti was a man who they kind of just got randomly tipped off about. Someone called the Washington Post and was like, yeah, I have this old friend who like claimed he was like doing covert operations for Nixon, and like, <laughs> I don't know, but maybe talk to him. <laughs> And so they talked to him and Segretti was like weirdly welcoming and was like, yeah, sure, I'll I'll talk to you. And he uh, was a former veteran or he, he was a vet, you know, of the military and he was a lawyer, actually. And he was like, yeah, I was just out of the military. I kind of like this portion. It gives you a little bit of sympathy for him. He's like, I was just out of the military. I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. And then a guy comes to me and says, hey, I have work I want you to do for the president. <laughs> and he was like, yeah, sure. And he's like, it was mostly pranks, right? Like, I don't know, if the Democrats were going to have some kind of convention at a certain location, I'd call that location ahead of time and see it was rescheduled. So they would get there and whoops, the doors are still locked. Or I would like create fake pamphlets for like 
I don't know, free beer for a Democrat event, and then people get there and there's no beer and everyone's mad at the Democrats. Or they'd order pizza and have it delivered, and then, oh, we didn't order pizza. Like, you know, it sounds so stupid. <laughs> I know. Right? But then you find out there's more insidious things, right? That they were investigating these political opponents and trying to take them down, right? They were spreading false rumors about people. We find out about this thing called the Canuck letter, which actually ended up kind of bringing down the potential presidential run of Muskie at the time Um, and creating this false idea that he said these things, he offended these people. And honestly, all these things were striking a chord with me now because we know what the internet is like now. Oh my God. What the news cycle is like now. And I, it might not have been as damaging then, but I'm sure it was still damaging to even offer these false narratives. I mean, it's fake news, right? They're in the business of fake news. They (laughs) called it rat fucking. (laughs) Yeah. But it really is just this disinformation campaign where they would plant these stories. They would just try to tear down. And what was interesting too, it was not just democratic candidates. It was also other Republican competition for Nixon. Yeah, yeah. Nixon was kind of out for anyone that he was suspicious of. And like you said, comparing that to today, you know, with today with like social media stories and ads and like connecting that to Russia and everything else going on, like, yeah, on one hand, we have more access to sources to like verify or disprove information we discover. But there's also a bigger onslaught of that information, too, right? Yeah. So it almost like balances out in the end. There's this whole like subplot where one of the employees at The Washington Post talks to Woodward and Bernstein and is like, oh, yeah, this guy I know told me that he wrote the Canuck letter. Yeah. And they're like excuse me? And they like pull her aside in the film. Bernstein, Dustin Hoffman just like drags her through the newsroom (laughs) and they discover that this guy named Clausen, who used to be an editor at the Washington Post, but now works for the White House, admitted to her over drinks that he wrote the Canuck letter. Yeah. And they were like, what? We got to talk to him. And so they get him on the phone They're like, hey, we heard this information and he's kind of thrown off. He's like, what? No, I I didn't say that. (laughs) Like, no. And then like they end their call and like two seconds later, her phone rings and she like waves over Bernstein and Woodward. (laughs) And I love this conversation because he's grilling her about like, how could you tell them about that, about (laughs) us and like our night together or whatever? Yeah. And she's like, I don't know what you're embarrassed about. I have nothing to regret. We just had drinks at our apartment. Yeah, and he's like, you know, you know. And he's like, I have a wife, a kid. And a family. And a family, and a dog and a cat. (laughs) (laughs) He keeps referring, he says it, I love, in the book it said what once, in the film it said twice, when he's telling people, he's like, listen, I have a wife, kids, a dog, and a cat. (laughs) Like, that's like the order of importance, I guess. He's like, I can't be, the story can't be that I was at this woman's apartment over drinks telling her about this. And and the Canuck letter is just this, this letter that, you know, caused this fake scandal for this person, right? And so this ends up not really becoming anything more than just this Another link in their chain of evidence on this like disinformation campaign, this network of spies, essentially. Yeah. Um, working for Creep or potentially for Nixon himself. Yes. Around this time, Woodward and Bernstein are kind of like ramping up their investigation. They're kind of climbing up this 
ladder of of people, right, of hierarchy within Creep and within the White House, working their way up, trying to draw connections to be like, who approved this? Who approved that? Who had to know about this because they were under them. Yeah, and, and a, at a certain point, they are convinced that a man named Haldeman, who is the chief of staff to Nixon, that he might be the ringleader of all of this. If Nixon isn't, it's him. Yeah. And so they're determined to, like, get him, right? They're like, we're going to name him. Yeah, they find some evidence that he's part of this. They have a couple people who sort of hint at this, and they're trying to get confirmation, right? Yeah. They have the hints, they have the clues, and now they just need some of their sources to actually be like, yes, Haldeman. And this is where they get into a little bit of trouble because they talk to Sloan, who is the guy that resigned, right? Who is sort of like the straight shooter where they're like trying to get him to talk about it. And they know that he talked to the FBI as part of their investigation. And the grand jury. And the grand jury. And so they're like, did you name Haldeman to the grand jury? And Sloan won't say. And they're like, okay, okay. How about if we wrote a story about Haldeman being involved would you tell us to not write the story? Like, they're they're going yeah. about it so roundabout. And they eventually get Sloan to say, like, I wouldn't oppose a story that implicated Haldeman. But he never says that he mentioned Haldeman to the grand jury. Yeah, he's just like, no, like, if you said Haldeman was responsible, I'd say, yeah. And they're like, okay, good. And then they call an FBI agent that is one of Bernstein's contacts and they were like hey do you know about Haldeman being involved and he's like what and they're like yeah you know Haldeman and he's like yeah no yeah yeah Bob Haldeman I know all about Bob Haldeman and he like hangs up and then they realize he's got he got his first name wrong (laughs) so they had to call him back and they're like do you mean John Haldeman I forget his actual name yeah 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 they're okay good 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 (laughs) but I think that was like, I think they had three sources, but they wanted one more. Yeah, they had someone else who confirmed it. Yeah. So then Bernstein called a guy, and I forget where he worked, and the guy wouldn't confirm, he wouldn't deny, and Bernstein's like, okay, 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 I got it, I got it. He's like, I'm going to hold on on the line, and I'm going to count to 10, and if you have no reason to think we shouldn't publish this article... Stay, on the, stay on the line for 10 seconds. If you think we shouldn't publish it, hang up before yeah. I count to 10. Except I don't even think he said that. Yeah. He just was like, if there's no reason not to publish it, don't hang up. <laughs> and so he counts to 10 and the guy doesn't hang up. And then the guy was like, you got it? And he's like, yep, we're good. So he got his like final confirmation, right? Yes. Yeah. So they published this story saying that Haldeman was named... To the FBI. Yeah, and to the grand jury. And to the grand jury. But it turns out that Sloan did not name them, but Haldeman is still involved. So, like, they got it right, but they got it right in a wrong way. Yeah, the issue was that the next day Sloan's lawyer was like, these are lies, right? And just came out and, like, refuted essentially, like, the whole article. And they're like, oh, my God, what happened? Where did we go wrong? How did we fuck this up? And they realize that Sloan would have mentioned this to the grand jury, but they were never, they never asked him about it. Yeah. So really the lawyer was just refuting the fact that Sloan named him in this interview with the grand jury, right? Yeah. So it's it's just like a tiny factor, right, in the story. But Sloan is 
really concerned about his credibility, yeah. right? Because he's being interviewed by all of these agencies, and so he has to refute this claim, yeah. right? So yeah, it ends up blowing up in their faces. The paper's credibility is being questioned. We have Bradley here in a scene saying we're going to support the boys, right? Um, I love that part where, yeah, it, I think it's referred to in the book, but in the film, they were like, what do we do? Do we can Woodward and Bernstein? And he's like, no, fuck it. Let's stay with let's stick with our boys. Yeah. Our boys. <laughs> I think Bradley gets all the F words in this movie. <laughs> he probably does. This movie I read was originally rated R because they say like the F word 10 times. <laughs> and then they were like, well, it's historically significant, though. Let's rate it PG, which at first I was like, what? <laughs> but then I remembered, I don't think PG-13 existed back then yeah. as a rating. So it went from PG to R. <laughs> <laughs> or R to PG. Or R to PG, yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so this kind of whole thing backfired on them. The White House is getting more aggressive. And Woodward decides, I need to meet with Deep Throat, like, mm-hmm. right now. So he sets up a meeting, and he talks to Deep Throat, and Deep Throat's like, man... You fucked up. Yeah. And he kind of, he's like, you already know what happened and what went wrong. But he's like, you made the White House feel like they were more secure. You actually had people sympathizing with Haldeman, which I didn't think was possible. (laughs) Like, you set your investigation back months with this, like, kind of flimsy story. And I really like this point in the book, too, because both Woodward and Bernstein are like, we know we fucked up. Mm -hmm. Like, we didn't get as concrete of evidence as we needed. We didn't have this story locked down as much as we should have. We were hearing what we wanted to hear. The guy on the phone didn't understand what I was saying when I said hang up in 10 (laughs) seconds. He really was confused. Yeah, he he thought the opposite. He wanted to warn Bernstein about publishing that story, but he didn't understand the instructions. The system. He was like, "I I don't get the system. And the FBI agent... Uh, Bernstein was kind of aggressive with his questioning about like the FBI fucking up the investigation. And so when he was like, we all, we know about Haldeman. So the FBI agent was just kind of covering for, for the, the FBI. FBI. He's like, oh, we know all about Haldeman. <laughs> Don't even worry about it. We're on to him. We know all about him. So he was just lying. Yeah. So I kind of love backtracking and seeing like where this all went wrong. Mm-hmm. But Woodward meets with Deep Throat and Deep Throat kind of gives him this, like, lecture, right? And this is where we get the divergence, Adina. Yes. Between book and film. Because both have been, with maybe, like, the the tweaking of certain facts or, like, the condensing of information or, you know, writing off certain parts, both have run parallel pretty well throughout, up until this point. But in the book, we're, like, halfway. halfway. And this is basically nearing the end of the film. Yeah. And uh, Woodward kind of gets in this confrontation with Deep Throat. And he kind of says, like, I'm tired of your chicken shit method. He's kind of like, you need to tell me what's going on. Like, is this worth pursuing or not? And Deep Throat kind of finally has this moment of, like, I'm going to tell you everything. Or at least, like, as much as I can at the moment. Yeah. And he starts telling him about, like, you weren't wrong about Haldeman. Mm -hmm. You just need more evidence. He starts explaining the system of payments and everything. And then he tells Woodward something else. He says, listen, you your life is in danger. And I love this moment. It cuts to Woodward rushing to Bernstein's apartment. Bernstein answers the door and Woodward walks in and he cranks up his like stereo. He puts a record on. (laughs) So this like classical music's playing and he starts typing a note on his typewriter and he says, 
you might be bugged right now. Yeah. And we discover that there might be CIA or FBI surveillance on each of them right now. Yeah, and possibly them at the post as well. At the post, too. Yeah. And so I love this moment of them typing back and forth to each other about yeah. like what's going on. And then they decide we have to call Bradley. So it's like the middle of the night. <laughs> they go to Bradley's home and they all go out onto the front lawn to talk. <laughs> and they tell Bradley everything. They're like, Deep Throat says we're in deep shit, that our lives are in danger. This is what's going on and what do we do? This is where Bradley gives one of his like best lines in the whole <laughs> film. He's where he says essentially like, well, boys, the state of our free press, our democracy and the country itself might be at stake. Don't fuck it up. <laughs> <laughs> and this is such an interesting way to end. The I, yeah, movie, I know. Right. Because this is essentially the end of the movie. We then see them both in the office and it's one of those shots that you were talking about, the right? The split diopter, yeah. Yes, where they're just typing away and they're furious, right? They're like, this is the renewed like energy that we need. We fucked up, but now we're going to go harder, right? We're going to get them this time. Yes, and I love, too, they're in the background. In the foreground is a television monitor with Nixon being sworn in for his second term yes. as president. Yes. That's like right in Making front. Making an oath to uphold the Constitution, yeah. right? And in the background, they're just typing away and they're like, fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> they're just kind of like back to back at their desks typing. And I, I really, really love where they chose to end this movie. It's interesting. It's so fast. Like, it is not the obvious place in the story to end. I know. I was like, hey, can we pause? Because I, I, like, needed to use the bathroom or something, and I didn't know when the movie yeah. ended. And then I'm like, oh, there's, like, five minutes left. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's not much left. I just, I love the idea. I don't, this would usually be either the halfway point or leading into the third act of the film. Like, oh, they fucked up. But then they pull it together and they find like the 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 source or the piece of evidence or the missing link or whatever the fuck they need to to like prove all of this like you don't get that you just get this sense that things are more dangerous than ever i mean they get the confirmation from deep throat yeah that they're not wrong they're on the right track but things are dangerous and there's work to be done yeah like there's still just more to do and I kind of love and that. And they get to it. Yeah, they get to it. They start working. And I just kind of love that message of this film. Yeah. Because a lot of the film has been like the kind of grunt work, right? This goes, this film goes in the, the list of films that I love that are just people doing their jobs. <laughs> Spotlight is in that list. Yeah. Moneyball is in that list. Movies that like don't overly romanticize the job. But it's still fascinating and interesting. Yeah. Like, there's a great scene in this film. It's like six minutes long, unbroken, of Woodward on the phone, of Robert Redford on the phone, calling one source, hanging up, putting them on hold, calling a different source, <laughs> double checking, making confirming, notes. making notes. The camera's just constantly pushing in on him. It's a fantastic scene. But, like, so much of this book and the film is just the grunt work, the phone calls, the writing, the driving from door to door. Yeah. And the movie ends at a point where it's just like more. There's more of that. There's more. Yeah. And in fact, we get kind of like an epilogue in the movie where we just see news headlines being typed 
on a typewriter, yeah. kind of summarizing the rest of the story, being like, this person's indicted, this person's arrested, this person's implicated, and ending, of course, with the resignation of Richard Nixon, right? But it's very interesting that this movie decides to stop here and then just kind of summarizes the end of the story in these brief newspaper headlines. Well, it's interesting, too, because in the in the book or in real life, I should say, it gets to a point in the investigation where the whole thing breaks open. The whole thing bursts open, right? Yeah. And Woodward and Bernstein are no longer the tip of the spear. They're kind of like trying to like catch up, catch now. up, make connections, find out information based on these investigations like everyone else's. And so there is kind of a point where like, you know, Nixon and these other politicians, they're not characters in this story. It's Woodward and Bernstein. And if their part of the story isn't, is diminished, is, is diminished, how do you wrap up that story? How do you tell that ending moment effectively? For sure. So I think you almost like kind of have to end here without pushing them to the background. Yeah. Um. But still, like I said, in terms of the message, I love the vibe and tone of the way this movie ends. Yeah. Let's talk about the rest of the book, though, because we have a lot happening here. In fact, we have Woodward and Bernstein maybe making another grave error where they try <laughs> to talk to the members of the grand jury. They decide, they like look into it and they think legally, if a member of the jury decides to talk during the trial, like it's not our fault. <laughs> They're allowed it's to. It's highly unethical, though. And in fact, when the judge finds out about this, he kind of acts like he might send them to jail. Yeah. And I'm like, shit. <laughs> and they're worried about it. Yeah. It's funny because all the press has to go to this, like, courtroom reading by the judge or, like, this this meeting or something. And the judge explains the situation without naming Woodward or Bernstein and just says the press has been trying to contact the jurors. Yeah. Luckily, no one said anything, so we're okay. But he's like, I will not tolerate this shit. <laughs> and so they realize, like, oh, my God, he's not going to arrest us. We're going to get away with we're it. We're going to get away with it. And then after the meeting, all the reporters are in the hallway. And they're like, who did it? Who did it? Was it you? <laughs> I bet it was this guy. Like, I bet it was the New York Times. And Woodward and Bernstein are just, like, trying to play along, like, yeah, man, I don't I don't know who it was. <laughs> well, it's also worth mentioning here that, you know, the Washington Post is not the only newspaper publishing stories about yeah. the Watergate cases. We have the New York Times. We have the L.A. Times. We have other Washington, D.C. newspapers. Tons of different newspapers are doing original reporting on this. And sometimes they even break information before Woodward Woodward and Bernstein can. Yeah, I remember stuff with the checks yeah. early on came out, I think from the New York Times before they figured it out. So yeah, I like that aspect of it too. Like they're kind of competing, but also like feeding each other info or yeah. like trying to work off each other's information. For sure. We also have uh, the press correspondent or the White House correspondent. What's his name? Uh, Ziegler. 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 Yeah. And the White House personally beginning to attack the Post at this time because of all the stories that are coming out. Targeting the Post, targeting Bradley, targeting Woodward and Bernstein, and just trying to sway people and say like, oh, they're just posting garbage. They don't know anything. This is unethical. Yeah. Yeah. Like really dangerous reporting. Like I support the free press, but. But they're going too far. It does. Once again, you're kind of connecting it to present day right and like trump's presidency yeah and it's interesting because the a lot of the language at this time was like i support the free press but what the washington post is doing <laughs> blah 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 whereas like 
Today it feels even worse where it's just like the press. Yeah. The media. And obviously that language is selective. Like Trump isn't probably including Fox News or other sources It when he talks about that. Like people kind of interpret that for themselves, but it still feels like a broader attack on the free press as a whole, right? Mm -hmm. So just kind of comparing once again, this administration and this situation with what we're going through today. Yeah. They also find out some information on this group of men called the plumbers who are dubbed this because they investigate news leaks. In fact, they specifically are in this role to find out who's leaking information to the press. Yeah, because after the Pentagon Papers were released or uncovered or whatever, Nixon was like, I have to fucking figure out what's going on in my White House and my administration and like put a stop to it. And the plumbers were kind of responsible for kind of investigating whoever they felt like needed investigating. Yeah, so wiretapping people, which was illegal. Yes. And just trying to find out like, dirt on people. In fact, a guy that ended up releasing the Pentagon Papers, and I looked this up because they mentioned some guy's name, and then they kept talking about him, and I'm like, who is this guy? And <laughs> yeah. I looked him up, and I'm like, oh my god, it's the guy who released the Pentagon Papers. They don't say it in the book or give any context, but basically, they hired people to break into this guy's psychiatrist's office to try to get dirt on him about his mental state, and wiretapped him and all this. Basically, it got to the point where all of this was coming out around Watergate, and this guy was on trial for releasing the Pentagon Papers. And the judge essentially was like, I have to throw out this case. Yeah. Because the government has been so involved and so just horrible. Like, I can't even, there's no clear case here against him and just exonerated him. It was like, <laughs> You can go free because the government just <laughs> fucked us up. Yeah, I mean, they kind of like did the opposite of what they meant to, essentially. Yeah, but then you, you're finding out about like um, all these college students that were recruited to do more of this rat fucking, right? Like, you know, influencing polls, stuffing ballot boxes. Um, what else were they doing? Oh, they were buying editorials in... The Washington Post in the New York Times to try to like create this false sense of public opinion that just wasn't there. Yeah, like stuff about like who's like the number of people that supported Vietnam or certain Nixon uh, initiatives. initiatives or ideas. Yeah, like they took public polls like through like a newspaper or through a news channel. And then they just like, I don't know, a total of 6,000 people responded, but 4,000 of those ballots were fake, were fake <laughs> from the Nixon administration. Yeah. So just kind of like seeing the extent of like where this rat fucking went. Yeah. And at one point, and I was unfamiliar with this story and I didn't look into it, a politician was assassinated or an attempted assassination. And there was speculation about like, is this part of it? Mm -hmm. I mean, like- they, they never found anything. No, they didn't believe that the Nixon administration would go that far in their efforts to, like, stop the Democrats, right? But they were still like, we've been surprised again and again Yeah, how low they'll sink. We have to consider this. And so they did investigate, investigate it. Nothing came up. But, I mean, almost like they were really starting to consider, at this point, all the options. Because it felt like for so long, people were like... Like, the president's administration wouldn't do this. Yeah. I mean, People like, would never do that, <laughs> right? And like you were saying, Ian, around this time, like, the momentum is building, right? You know, they're writing enough stories 
and they're uncovering so much. And then other newspapers are writing stories too and also uncovering things. And we're building enough momentum that other people are starting to take notice. And in fact, there is a congressional inquiry at this time and Senator Irvin heads this inquiry and is basically like, we have to get Congress involved to essentially investigate the president, right? That's kind of what it comes down to. It starts to just investigate Watergate and then how the FBI investigated. And we saw this happen with Trump, right? You have Congress, you have the FBI, you have these different um, governmental authorities investigating. And I do find it really fascinating that like Congress is sometimes more effective and more trustworthy than the FBI can be, right? Yeah, I mean, when government agencies are so shrouded in layers of uh, mystery and kind of these behind these walls, like they operate in the shadows, you're just like, I don't know if you can trust them or not, you know, and there's no transparency to what's going on. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting, too, because at this point with Nixon, the ethics or even the the legality or the constitutional legality of questioning or implicating the president were like much more unknown. Like no one had even thought about it really at this point. Yeah. They were like, what can we do besides begin impeachment proceedings? And right? where does presidential, what's the word? Not immunity. Authority. I can't think of the word, but you know, uh, the president doesn't have to answer all questions. He has a right to certain privileges. Is that a presidential guide? I can't remember uh, because it's come up too with Trump. But that was also an issue too, and a, a big question that like nobody really had answers to. Yeah, and you end up seeing too when um, the new FBI director Gray is going through his confirmation trials. He ends up revealing some information about Watergate and the payments made to some of these men. Right. And that ends up implicating Nixon's aides and Nixon's office itself. And this is where the dam kind of breaks. And we see some people who were so kind of keeping rank. Right. They were staying quiet. They were holding fast to Nixon and to their, you know, political party and everything. They start to break. We see um, McCord who breaks his silence and ends up submitting a letter to the judge saying that he wasn't truthful in his testimony. He was one of the uh, five burglars in the original Watergate. And these men had originally pleaded not guilty. And then suddenly they changed their plea to guilty. And the judge was like, what the fuck's going on? Are you being pressured to do this? Are you being paid Are off? Are you being paid? And they yeah. were all like, no, we're not being pressured. Like, no, nothing's going on. Like, I, I forget if it's Bernstein or Woodward was like the way their heads nodded was like in unison. <laughs> and so it was obvious something was going on. And McCord was the first one to break and write back to the judge later and be like, yeah, we were being pressured. Yeah. And we were being paid off. Mm-hmm. And then we have Dean, who is part of the congressional aides to the president. He ends up coming out and starting to talk to the FBI, to Congress and saying, Yeah, you know, I actually told the president about all this, and he knew about this. And he kind of ends up becoming one of the spokespeople for this whole conspiracy and coming clean about it all and saying, like, yeah, Haldeman and Ehrlichman and I, we all knew about what was going on. And then at one point, I approached the president and was like, listen, this whole enterprise is huge. Like, it has to come down on me. 
Haldeman and Ehrlichman, like, we have to come clean about this. We'll take the fall. Like, you don't need to be implicated. And instead, Nixon was like, actually, what if you're just the fall man? Yeah. Haldeman and Ehrlichman were the two closest confidants of the president, I think, in his White House. And they all kind of decided, well, maybe just John Dean needs to, like, take the fall for this. And Dean was like... I know too much, man. I'm not doing that, man. Yeah. And he starts... He immediately begins cooperating and uh, confessing to everything and going on record over stuff. And pretty soon it got to the point where Nixon also had to accept the resignations of Haldeman and Ehrlichman, too. Yeah, who were indicted. And then we find out that there's tapes, right? Yeah. Uh, Nixon was taping himself, Ian. I just... The level, I mean, this is like such poetic irony, right? That like Nixon was like wiretapping other people, trying to gain information. And his paranoia ran so deep that he had to record the people he was talking to and therefore himself. Yeah. Right. And then ends up implicating (laughs) himself in all of this. Yeah. And, you know, the book ends on the note that Congress is investigating the impeachment process, right? I really love where this book ends because it kind of I would kind of like to know more specifically where this like at what point this book was published and like on the timeline of like Nixon's resignation and where it fell and everything. But the final line of this book is a quote into the nation. The president said, I want you to know that I have no intention whatever of ever walking away from the job that the American people elected me to do. For the people of the United States. <laughs> wah, wah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the beginning of a It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia episode, and then the title card comes up, the president resigns. <laughs> it is, right? <laughs> <laughs> but I, I mean, I don't think that it happened yet, no, right, when hadn't. the book came out. But, like, they were, like, looking into the future and putting that quote out there yeah. almost as, like, a... Hmm, we'll hmm, see. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, like, I think the perfect end note kind of like almost ominous or like foreboding right yeah yeah that's the end of the book and the movie and uh we gotta decide which one's better i'm gonna toss this to you because i (laughs) as usual have not really thought about it that much okay you know i've thought about it and i think that i prefer the movie okay um I think the book is good, but I will admit to feeling overwhelmed by the sheer scale of the facts and the people in yeah. it. A lot of that probably has to do with just not being alive at the time that this was going on, not having a general familiarity with the names and the positions and the players in this whole scandal, right? But like I said, some things I just felt like could have been explained better like throwing out names of people that they've never mentioned before and being like, you know who that is. Yeah. And not explaining it. I'm like, come on. (laughs) You know? Yeah. And I just love that the movie has kind of more of an interesting arc. And yeah, it's more vibes, but I don't know. To be honest, like when I'm watching and experiencing a story like this, I do want the vibes, you know? That's true. I totally, I agree that I love the vibes of the film And I would return to the film over the book, right? Yeah. Um, That being said, though, I really enjoyed this book in a lot of ways. Really? Which I can't say I've ever read a book like it. I mean, it's just like so in the weeds of names and places and accusations and like the investigative process, right? But I found it much easier to read than 
I would have thought. Really? I, I don't know. I struggled with this book. Which is fair. I would not have thought about this as a <laughs> book that I would have, like, have enjoyed reading. But I don't know. Maybe it was just the idea that, you know, even though I love the film, like I was saying, I don't know if you can walk away with it with no understanding of Watergate beforehand and, like, retain any of, like, what it means. And, like, really the broader aspects of Watergate was, like, yeah, Watergate was, like, the linchpin or, you know, whatever. But, like, the the bigger issue was, like, these – the larger scale of the rat fucking and, like, yeah. them employing all these other people and everything that meant and the other wiretapping and, like – who knew about fund. what? The slush fund, yeah. And, like, a lot of that's brought up in the film, but I don't think it really hones in on the fact that, like, that's the crucial aspect, right? Yeah. Um. So I kind of want to say the book on this one. Wow. We're going to disagree? Gonna dis- I mean, I'm also saying it, I know it'll be, it's like a 50-50 choice, right? <laughs> like, I like that we're evening out, because I yeah. do really love the movie, too. Yeah, I'm I'm fine with saying the movie, because I definitely prefer the movie, yeah. so. And like I said, I will return to the movie gladly, mm-hmm. probably before returning to the book. <laughs> but I am almost like, I know Woodward and Bernstein wrote a follow-up book to this. Yeah. And I'm almost like, oh, that might be interesting to, like, listen to or something. <laughs> All right, so we are going to split on this one. Yeah. You're going to go with the book. I'm going to go with the movie. Um, Let's read a little bit about what our patron Eric has to say about this book and movie combo. So Eric says, I first saw this movie in college and like many when it first came out, it inspired me to go into a journalism career where I've been for more than a decade. Congratulations, Eric. That's so cool. The movie is heavy on the process, light on the action, but it's so fascinating to see how the stories came together. Over the years, I've actually come to like the book just a bit more than the movie, but both are great. So I think Eric agrees with you, Ian. (laughs) I mean, if the patron agrees with me, you know. No, that's really cool. I do think I read that like the book and the movie, I mean, they both came out around the same time, did like influence a lot of people to get into investigative journalism. Which is so cool. And I totally understand. Like this is one of those movies like watching it, you're like, yeah, I want to do this. Like spotlight, right? Yeah. <laughs> All right, let's do a lightning let's round. Let's get into lightning. So first up for lightning round, occasionally in the book, you kind of get a glimpse into the lives of Woodward and Bernstein. There's one part that I thought was so funny where Woodward was moving from his apartment, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. And because the whole thing about meeting Deep Throat revolved around, like, Woodward putting a potted plant with a flag on his uh, fire escape... At his next meeting with Deep Throat, he told him, like, listen, I'm going to be moving. Here's my new address. Like, I wanted you to know. So Woodward moves. He gets to his new place. And his upstairs neighbors (laughs) are late night, loud music listeners and dancers. (laughs) Like, in the middle of the night, he's just kept up all night by their tap dancing feet and the loud (laughs) music playing. And it drives him crazy. And, like, he's there, like two months maybe and he's like i gotta move i gotta get out of here and he has to schedule an entire meeting with deep throat just to tell him like listen i'm moving again (laughs) like he's like i have no news or info or questions i just need you to know that you have to look for the flag at this new address now and i thought that was so funny very funny uh i want to mention that uh carl bernstein at the time i don't know if it was at the time he was writing the articles but definitely around the time when um he was writing the book and the movie came out was dating Nora efron who if you don't know who Nora efron is what are you doing Nora Ef- <laughs> Nora efron wrote 
Sleepless in Seattle, When Harry Met Sally, she directed Sleepless in Seattle. She directed um, You've Got Mail. Yeah. She's just such a prof- prolific screenwriter and director. Amazing woman. Very funny. But she dated Carl Bernstein, and then they got married. And in fact, she wrote a screenplay and turned... Or she wrote a novel, turned it into a movie about him cheating on her. <laughs> it's this whole thing. I love her, right? Um, but I'm reading from her Wikipedia page here. For many years, Ephron was one of the very few people who knew the identity of Deep Throat, the anonymous informer for articles written by her ex-husband, Carl Bernstein and Bob Woodward. Ephron read Bernstein's notes, which referred to Deep Throat as MF. Bernstein said it stood for my friend, but Ephron correctly guessed it stood for Mark Felt, the former associate director of the FBI. After Ephron's message marriage with Bernstein ended, Ephron revealed Deep Throat's identity to her son Jacob and anyone else who asked. <laughs> she once said, I would give speeches to 500 people and someone would say, do you know who Deep Throat is? And I would say, it's Mark Felt. <laughs> Classmates of Jacob Bernstein at the Dalton School of Ambassador College recall Jacob's revealing to numerous people that felt was deep throat. This revelation attracted little media attention (laughs) during the many years that the identity of deep throat was a mystery. Efron said, no one apart from my sons believed me. (laughs) I think people just thought she was speculating. Yeah. And that she didn't actually know. But I love that she was just like, yeah, I'll tell anyone. Yeah, it's it's Mark Felt. She's like on stage giving speeches. Yeah. Identifying <laughs> one of the greatest mysteries in American history. It's so funny. I love that story I love that so for much. Her. <laughs> uh last up for lightning, there's this other really funny part in the book where they are at the White House correspondence dinner. And then afterwards there are parties. And we talked about this man Clausen, who used to be an editor at the Post went to the White House and confessed to someone that he wrote the Canuck letter that basically ruined someone's entire political career, right? Yeah. So I'll read from here. (laughs) Some of the news organizations had rented hospitality suites where drinks were served almost to sunrise. Woodward arrived at the Wall Street Journal's party at around 2 a.m. About 20 people, glasses in hand, were gathered in one corner, and a familiar voice was ringing out from the center of the circle. You son of a bitch! Unmistakably Bradley. He was arguing with his former employee, now White House aide, Ken Clausen. The subject of Clausen's purported statement confessing he had written the Canuck letter. But the argument ranged over ancient battles, the press versus the government, the Washington Post versus Nixon. Clausen had once told friends that Bradley was the man he admired most. Now he despised Bradley and held him personally to blame for the Canuck letter story. Fueled by alcohol, the debate grew hotter and more personal. The two men in dinner clothes waved away anyone who tried to join in. Finally, in a ridiculous attempt to be more discreet, they moved into a closet and left the door open. Have they hit each other yet? One woman asked, hopefully. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, I just I just really love that part. It's so funny hearing Bradley getting drunk and like arguing with Clausen in the middle of this party. Yeah, I love it. (laughs) (laughs) That's it for lightning round for us, though. Yeah. And that wraps up our episode. Thank you so much for listening. Hopefully you now know more about Watergate than you knew originally. Or maybe you know more than we do and you're like, you got it wrong. (laughs) In which case we apologize. And I just want to give another shout out to our patron, Eric, for suggesting this episode. It was a really fun one to talk about and discuss, and I'm really glad that we got to do this one. If you have an episode that you would love us to talk about, whether it's a book you love or a movie you love or something that you just want us to compare it, 
just become a patron. Right? Yeah. We do those uh, Patreon requests all the time. That's the best way. Uh, we give patrons priority recommendations for episodes. Uh, you also gain access to over 50 bonus episodes, ranging from us talking about the Mission Impossible franchise, the Oscars, just other adaptations. Uh, you can find all of that at patreon.com slash cover to credits. You can also email us at cover to credits pod at gmail.com and go to cover to credits.com to listen to episodes, find access to our Patreon, find our Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, all that good stuff. Uh, thank you all so much for listening. We'll see you next time. We'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.